Hello and welcome to the Oz Investing Podcast, the podcast for the everyday investor. Just a quick note before we begin today's podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be considered as personal financial advice. If you're ever in doubt about your financial situation, please reach out to a qualified financial advisor. With all that said and done, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Oz Investing Podcast. My name is Sam and with me as always is my buddy Jude. How are you, Jude? Doing good. Sam, how are you? Good, mate. Good, good. I'm extremely excited today because we have another guest on the podcast. I'm very excited to welcome Irina from Appitude. How are you today, Irina? I'm good, Sam. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good, Irina. Thank you so much uh, for being one of our guests today. You know, just for the benefit of our listeners, you know, Irina is my mortgage broker. Thought it would be a good idea to just bring her in onto the podcast, share the wealth of knowledge that she has, uh, particularly in today's very tough, high interest rate environment, right? So, but before we get into the specifics and the questions, Irina, could you just tell us something about yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, First of all, Jude, thank you so much for inviting me on this podcast. It is an immense pleasure to be here. For my background, I am a chartered accountant and worked as an accountant and tax consultant before taking long leave to take care of my young family. When I got back to work, I wanted to do something which I really like, which is like numbers and real estate. By then, I and my husband had already started making our property portfolio. And that's when I discovered this industry and I found that this industry is the epitome of these two things, numbers and real estate. So now I work as a finance broker where I assist people for their varied finance needs like business loans, asset finance, personal loans and everything related to mortgage from buying the first house to investments, refinancing, SMSF loans and everything in between. What I like about doing doing this is connecting to people hearing their stories, hearing the background they come from, and what do they want to uh, do to build their wealth, talking about their dreams of building houses or making, buying their first properties, help them achieve those dreams. And it is really rewarding to see people achieving their dreams by buying their houses or buying their, their first car or giving the businesses another chance. So yeah. Wow, that's really amazing, Irina. Very, very interesting background. And yeah, I can just tell from the way you talked about your story, you really love helping people and you're definitely in an area that you really love, which is which is wonderful. So uh, that's awesome, Irina. So yeah, having yourself um, as, as a broker and a tax accountant, Jude and I are really keen actually to get your perspective on the current housing market. So I did a little bit of research before we started recording and we're we're recording today on the 17th of June 2023 with the cash rate sitting at 4.1%. And when I was looking back at the numbers, we've actually had increases all the way since May 2022 and we've had 12 rate hikes and just the single pause in April. So I guess Irina really wanted to get your thoughts around, you know, when you're talking with potential house buyers and investors, what are the biggest talking points? Obviously, interest rates are are a big factor, but, um, you know, what else are you hearing from your potential clients? Yeah, so Australia's housing market is in a very interesting space, Sam, for now. And the beauty is that it continues to defy the expectations. 
you mentioned few data here and uh, let me put some data here as well so the first thing is as as you mentioned the national house home value index has recorded a third consecutive monthly rise the pace of growth accelerating sharply to 1.2% in may mm. and mm. Uh, mm. after finding a floor in february the home values increased 0.6 and 0.5% through march and april respectively mm. the next is 76 approximately 76% of the capital city auctions were successful in the weekend before last and mm. this is the highest preliminary uh, preliminary rate rise since early november 2021 so we are talking about in 18 months mm-hmm. and the third thing is despite the, there has been 12 interest rate increases from rba which has seen official rates rise by 4% over the last year property prices have not only stopped falling but they are actually now on the rise yeah that's really interesting and uh, yes. yeah i i have started looking into this a little bit but i really want to get your thoughts around it what why do you think that house prices are increasing now despite these rises in interest rates what's what's driving this i know from what i've been reading a little bit comes down to the increase in migration now back into australia after the covid lockdowns but you know what are some of the other factors that come into play a very important factor is the demand and supply ratio mm. the supply is definitely not as much as the demand the demand is increasing now people have been waiting for this economic scenario to settle down from almost a year now mm-hmm. and there was a lot of uncertainty and they were holding on but i think now they have run out of patience and they just want to go into the market and buy because they have savings from yep. the covid times when everyone everyone was in a good financial situation So yeah they have savings investors have built in equity during the 21 cycle property cycle where everything just increased in value so investors mm. have got equity there and then uh, of course the supply is not as much because the vendors are not as willing to sell but then their demand is constantly increasing which is uh, seeing the property prices uh, growing up and this is very interesting interesting stage actually because no one predicted the cycle to turn around so fast mm. then migration as you suggested is the another uh, reason because uh, there is uh, so much news in the media that so many people are going to come over the next 12 to 18 months in australia and uh, everyone knows that uh, melbourne is very popular victoria in itself is a very popular destination for mig- uh, migrants mm. got it so got yeah it. so that's the another reason and uh, i guess now the people are just like because they, they also know that the rates are going to pause so now mm. they are more in hold of their borrowing capacity in sense like they know how much they can borrow and how much their repayment repayments owed be for a certain period of time going forward mm-hmm. like even if they take a buffer of say another few rate rises they are in more certain position about mm-hmm. their finances so they can take that leap of faith and jump into the property market got it so that's that's very insightful you know because that showcases that there is that you know upswing in terms of demand as you said because i guess you know we have like mixed messaging which takes place where on one side of things where they say an increase in rate height brings things to a halt but you know you've you've been working on the ground and you see there has also been an upswing in demand so that's really interesting in terms of yeah. uh, the insights that you've brought on when it comes to some of those big talking points uh, for the investors or maybe the buyers for today what are some of the key themes that are often discussed when you interact with people yeah when they um, reach out either for mm-hmm. the refinance or they are the first time property buyers or investors 
the mm-hmm. first thing is uh, when do you think the rate rise is going to stop on the question i guess and rba doesn't know when it's going to stop and uh, of course the second question that comes around is then what will be our repayments mm-hmm. yeah Correct. Yeah, Correct. because everyone is living uh, tight in their budget these days. We all know, and um, they have a certain capacity which cannot be expanded in the current cost of living environment. Correct. Correct. No, so interesting. They want to know, yeah, whether they will be afford to, uh, up there, the, sorry, whether they will be able to afford those repayments. That's the first mm-hmm. question they have. And uh, once we tell them on a broad basis, okay, if you are going after this loan, uh, mm-hmm. that of course your borrowing capacity and everything needs up. If you mm-hmm. are going to this loan, this is going to be your repayments. Take a buffer. This is what I strongly suggest everyone. If mm-hmm. you are about a rate of six percent today, take mm-hmm. a buffer of at least 0.5, 6.5. If you have mm-hmm. budget of this repayment within mm-hmm. your um, finances, yep. then that's when we can start talking about it. Got it. Yeah, this is the common question. These two questions are in every conversation. <laughs> got it. Yeah, got it. Now that's uh, really insightful, and I guess just keeping the theme around commonly asked questions from a first homer buyer's perspective, can you just tell our listeners what pre-approval is, and also how likely is a pre-approval going to turn into a full final approval? Sure, Sam. So pre-approval is bank where bank principally agrees to give you a certain amount of loan subject to certain conditions. Mm-hmm. and one of those is definitely finding the acceptable security so if you don't want to waste your time looking at the properties which even you aren't in which aren't in your budget or probably you don't want to waste time going into the market when you are not sure if your credit history is up to date for banks to accept then pre approval is the way to go mm-hmm. uh, pre approval is favored and asked by most real estate agents these days so yeah. even if it a property is not in an auction and even in a private sale what i find is that when my client just go and inspect the house and ask for section 32 the first question agents ask is do you have a pre approval in place mm. because um, that gives them an indication that you are a serious buyer yeah uh, another thing is that it is sort of a limited guarantee for the agents that sale will not fall apart at least for the finance reasons yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so yeah. also gives buyers a confidence that they can go into the auction to bid and sign contract unconditionally. Mm. Yeah, got it, got it. So Jude and I were talking about property sales before in a, in a previous podcast and we were saying that for the private sale route people can say are oh, subject to building and pest and also subject to finance as well but obviously when you're making a bid for a property that's subject to finance it's not going to look as favorable as one that's not right so Absolutely. to your point yeah pre-approvals you know quite important you have like if you can take off the finance approval from the mm. contract you can yeah. actually negotiate yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah yeah now that's that is that is interesting there and I think another important point you just mentioned one of those commonly asked questions with anyone coming in is about borrowing capacity so like just could you just give us an insight as to how do you really arrive at this borrowing capacity number maybe for an individual or you know as a couple going in for their property how does how does that number arrive at as much i like to give you a formula jude <laughs> <laughs> but it is actually a very complex process mm, and uh, lots of algorithms goes behind the scene 
So it. it is affected by how many liabilities do you have? Mm-hmm. It is also affected by how much deposit you are going to put in because that determines the assessment rate, which in mm-hmm. turn determines your borrowing capacity. Got so it. although there are a few calculators available online, mm-hmm. but they are very limited in their capacity. And Got it. most of the times actual result can actually fall far behind. Mm. But mm. Uh, however, for very uh, basic household with a couple, no dependents, no liabilities, no variable income, mm-hmm. um, you can go with the thumb rule of uh, loan can be around five five times of the combined gross income. Got it. Got Just it. as a very rough, exactly. uh, uh, wobbly thumb. Yeah. That this ratio decreases every time rate increases. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Got it. So the, uh, the ideal thing is reach out to the brokers or the bankers like me who can actually help you determine this. That that would be the best advice I can give. Yeah. And and it's a it's a, it's a correct advice as well, Arena, because everyone's circumstances are different, like as you Absolutely, mentioned. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's good to have like a benchmarking kind of a number or, or associated with your mind, but as you said, like everyone's circumstances are pretty different. You need to really arrive at a number and then obviously with uh, someone like your expertise would be able to give them the right suggestion and you know advice so no spot on on that one for sure yeah and i guess obviously home buyers want to obviously get the best possible borrowing capacity what are some practical steps that people can do to try to maximize their borrowing capacity so if i pay off my credit cards or pay off my afterpay debt will those kind of things help towards improving my borrowing capacity definitely sam definitely the more sorted your current liabilities are the better chances of you to get a good deal in the market and get the best borrowing capacity so uh, definitely the savings is one thing that you can help so the more you put in and the better deal and the better loan you get but in terms of the liabilities as well the idea is that you should consolidate your liabilities and try to pay off and close as many as you can within your budget. So Mm. suppose if you have got multiple credit cards, ideally consolidate them into one credit card and reduce the limit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I get this a lot of time, like people, uh, when I ask people about their liabilities, how many credit cards do you have? Uh, We don't have any credit card. And then I say, okay, so no credit cards. And they say, oh, we do do have one $6,000, but we don't use it. (laughs) The thing is, even if you do not use it, it is your liability. You can use it anytime. Nobody can stop it. So you Mm. have to either close it or Mm -hmm. factor that in your borrowing capacity. Yeah. Yeah. So as you said, Sam, the more simplified your liabilities are, the better deals and borrowing capacity you achieve. Yeah. And I've had the situation before where I had a student loan before. So people that can pay off their student loan, that'll also help towards the borrowing capacity. Is that correct? Hex. You mean hex payment? Yes, correct. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, that's your liability as well. And Mm, that reduces mm. your uh, in-house income, like the income after tax. Mm, mm, Yeah. mm, So paying that off. But sometimes like hex is an interest-free loan. It is just indexed. But Mm. you, if you have a personal loan, which would be around 10% to 12%, yep. then idea is to pay that off before you pay off your hacks. Yes. Mm, correct. Yeah. So you have to see which are your high interest liabilities and start from there. Like pay off your your liability, which is an unsecured debt, for example, like after pay, zip pay, personal loans, they have to go mm. first off your credit file. 
Correct. There is some good insight there because I think that's an important component. And it's also about structure there, you know, what you mentioned, you know, try to identify the ones which makes more sense to pay off first. Yes. So that's really that's really good insight right there. Coming to another commonly asked question, and I think people with, you know, with property would obviously hear this term quite often, which is lenders mortgage insurance, which is LMI. But, you know, for someone really getting into this property game, could you just explain to the listeners what an LMI is? What are some of the different scenarios or percentages, you know, that banks offer when it comes to LMIs? And is the 20% deposit for ownership still a golden rule when you're going to buy your principal place of residence? Sure, sure, sure. So I start with your last question, 20% deposit for ownership. Yeah. it used to be, but in current economic situation where cost of living is immensely high, mm-hmm. it is a big challenge for people to save money. Mm. So on an average, it is taking longer for people to save 20% deposit. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that by the time they get 20% property, property would have gone up, making that 20% only equivalent to say 18 or 15%. Mm-hmm. So again, they go back into the same cycle where they want to increase the savings, then throwing them back into the property cycle, which is keep going up. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it is rather wise to put your foot in the door in time and benefit by increasing real estate. And yep. in that case, if a little LMI comes into play, it's all right, because I'll give you an example later. So mm-hmm. this brings us to the question of what is LMI? Whenever your deposit is less than 20%, that's when the lender's mortgage insurance is charged by the bank to the borrower. The important thing to note here is lender's mortgage insurance protects lender and not Mm -hmm. the borrower. Mm, In case borrower cannot make repayments and lender has to sell property for less than outstanding loan amount. To rephrase Mm. it, say suppose the borrower is unable to make the repayments Bank has mm-hmm. to take over the properties and they have to put it up on the market. All the cost involved to the bank is recovered by the bank through the mortgage insurance. So the mortgage mm-hmm. the mortgage is insured with a third party. Now, Got borrowers it. should not confuse it with the mortgage protection insurance. Mm-hmm. Got mortgage it. protection insurance is to protect yourself in case you cannot, cannot make the repayments. LMI mm-hmm. protects the lender. Got and it. because you are not making 20% deposit, the mm-hmm. LMI is charged by the bank. The, the whole charge of LMI is pushed to the borrower and it is added up into the loan amount to Got be it. paid over the life of the loan. Got it. So what would be a, like a, a rough rule of thumb, though, in terms of how someone would be able to estimate the LMI? So let, let's just let's just assume someone's only able to put up a 15% deposit. They're, they're 5% short on a $500,000 property. Is there a way to roughly estimate the LMI or it's quite different depending on financial circumstances? It um, does depend on some circumstances, Sam, because if you are self-employed, the rate charge, LMI rate charge to you is more than if you are a PAYG. Mm-hmm. Right. If you are mm-hmm. an investor, mm-hmm. then the LMI rate charge to you will be higher than those charged to a, a first-home buyer for the same numbers. There are a few things, but there are uh, definitely some ballpark uh, things like if your contribution is, say, 15%, then you can take uh, give or take 1.5% of the loan amount, maybe your LMI. Mm, Got it. Your contribution is, say, 10%, then give and take 2.5%, it would be. 
pretty much but those are still again just rough rough estimates it's still depending on the situation that you really fall under right in terms of the categories yes that's yeah. right the good thing is if you have 15% deposit there are few mm-hmm. lenders in the market which mm-hmm. would take your loan for um, $1 lmi so there are few current offers going on in the market whereby mm-hmm. first home buyers can take advantage of getting mm-hmm. into the market sooner without paying lmi even mm-hmm. if they have a 15% deposit and of course then the government guarantees are there to help out people who have only 5% or 10% deposits as well got it got it no makes sense awesome. good to know and i guess for first home buyers a lot of the time they're going to be looking at their loan and trying to figure out okay do i go principal and interest or do I go interest only? What are some of the things that people need to think about in terms of how they're going to structure their loan? They're going to go in terms of either a P&I loan or an interest only loan. If your cash flow allows to pay principal, you mm-hmm. must pay principal. And for principal place of residence owner occupied especially, mm-hmm. you must pay uh, principal and interest as long as your cash flow allows, to, allows you to do so. Because for your uh, owner-occupied properties, you mm-hmm. want to pay off your loan sooner than later. Yeah. Interest only is often a pricey option, and it also impacts your borrowing capacity negatively. Mm-hmm. However, okay. for investors, they can think of interest only for a short time to manage their cash outflow. Got it. This again, yeah, depends on the individual circumstances. But uh, suppose if you have got two mortgages to pay off, like uh, mm-hmm. one for your own house and the other for investment, mm-hmm. then ideally you should pay off P and I more and more on your owner-occupied loan, and you can go interest only because you have as much cash flow. So you better direct yep. it more towards your owner-occupied ha- house and take mm-hmm. advantage of negative gearing by making it interest only for investment loan. Got it. Now that's that is definitely an interesting uh, in, interesting insight in that one. But just sticking to that same next question, which comes as a follow up from this PNI and interest only. And again, this is uh, as you mentioned, Irina, because this is all circumstances based. But you know, when choosing those different parameters of fixed, variable, or split, right? What are some of the talking points when it comes under each of these uh, categories as to what makes it more appealing? than the other like you know why would someone go for a fix why would someone go for a variable or why would someone go for a split uh, loan option that's a very interesting question jude (laughs) (laughs) to begin with fixed variable split this is a very individualistic thing and Mm -hmm. uh, there is no set formula to decide this it Mm -hmm. actually varies as per customers risk tolerance and future goals a lot of it is what is the risk appetite of the client and uh, where do they want to see themselves in terms of this finance in two years or three years time? So the while the fixed rate is uh, good initially for first home buyers so they can budget themselves better. Mm-hmm. But we all know that in longer term, you do not save interest with fixed rate and it takes longer to pay off the loan. Yeah. So then that comes brings us to the variable rate which gives you flexibility to save on your interest expense by using offset and redraw facilities. You can make additional repayment into the loan without any penalties and stuff. But then in the current rate rise environment, that can be a little tricky to have a variable loan and you see your repayments increasing every month. Correct. So then we we talk about the split. split Mm. And that brings you the best of both the things. Got it. 
Yeah, but what should be the ratio? I think that's what you mean by the math puzzle. What? Yeah, it's it, it's predominantly to do with, and I said again, the the percentage is something which is again it's depending on you know individual circumstances. But like as you would say, from a benchmarking perspective, what would be the you know percentage split, so to speak? So why do you want this split? Why do you want fixed rate, and what do you why do you want variable rate? The advantage mm -hmm. of variable rate is to use offset and redraw facility, pre mill, mm -hmm. and make additional repayment, right? Now, you can use offset and redraw facility only to the extent of your savings. Mm. Suppose I've got a half a million dollar loan mm -hmm. um, against which I've got $50,000 savings. So mm. basically, I'm saving interest expense on the $50,000 that I will put in the offset or redraw, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, if I put all the loan on variable, then the advantage is only on the $50,000. Mm. So what in that case, what I can do is I can fix most of my loan because there will be no offset no redraw facility and my, i might get a crisp fixed rate on on the majority portion so mm. in that case i can decide okay i'll put 415 fix and 50000 in variable however say suppose if you go for fixed rate for 2 years and mm -hmm. you expect additional 40000 dollars savings mm -hmm. in that period mm -hmm. then you might want to keep that buffer as well for the variable got it makes got sense yeah, no, makes so in sense. In that makes case, sense. yeah, half a million of the loan will be split as 410 fix, 90,000. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, makes to sense. Factor in the projected savings equivalent uh, during the fixed rate term. Again, I would insist it is also dependent on individual circumstances because sometimes people are expecting big bonuses, right? So yes. you have to factor in that if you get that bonus amount, say $50,000, and you have mm -hmm. everything on fix, you won't be able to use it. No, that's that's really good insight. I do have a follow up and this relates to split loans. And that is I have heard that if you do split a loan after the fixed interest rate period expires, let's say two years, that the loan still stays split at that time. Correct. It doesn't rejoin together. And if someone wants to rejoin the loan again, they will have to redo the application right from the beginning is that correct yes that's right once mm. you split the loan it stays as two separate loans forever until you actually make an application and join them together because both of them are totally separate loans absolutely yep. it's just that they are on one security but then they are totally different loans yeah so i think that's something that people should be aware of and that they um need to think about that yeah after the fixed rate expires it's still going to sp stay split and then for some people this might be a bit messy because it does make the accounting you know slightly more tricky because you've got two loans now instead of one so i think it's something that people should be aware of the other thing i guess is when you're trying to structure a loan there are many kind of features that are available so you mentioned some of them before there's redraw accounts there's offset accounts what are some of the key things people need to understand when they're looking at the feature set of all these different types of uh, loan accounts? How does someone work out what's going to be best for them? Okay, the main feature here is a redraw and offset mm. because they actually help you save on your interest expense. Mm -hmm. If you would ask me this question, say, a few years ago, maybe three years or so, then the answer would have been different because that time, Redraw was a bit of a restricted facility from the banks. It was a bit pricey option because if 
you you could there are there were restrictions you could not redraw less than 500 dollars if you mm. redraw from over the counter they would charge you at 50 dollar or 100 dollar fees per transaction mm. redraw would come at a cost and but over the period of time bank has simplified their products so nowadays with most of the lenders the redraw facility comes free with the home loan account so you don't have to pay for it mm. it is way more simplified now than it was few years ago yep and uh, that is what redraw is it is a facility which is attached to your loan so what yeah. you have to do is you have to take your savings and pay it into your home loan so it is reflected as a redraw you can take mm-hmm. it away anytime that you want to use your money as long as you're doing online banking there is no fees usually there is no fees with most of the lenders but again it is worth checking with your lenders and correct me if I'm wrong about this, Irina, but the redraw is if you make additional repayments above the minimum, then your redraw starts building. Is that correct? While the offset is a totally separate account where, let's say, you've got, you know, a lump sum of money, $10,000, $20,000, whatever it might be, you can just park that money into the offset account and the offset account will help reduce the interest that you pay on your loan it won't actually reduce your repayments but it will reduce the interest and then in the long term you can actually pay off your loan in a shorter period of time is that correct that is right about the offset so offset is a um, just works like a transaction account it is mm. a, it is sort of set and forget yeah yep. that's why offset accounts usually have a fees associated with them because you don't have to do anything once mm. you link the um, home loan account with your offset account Yep. then whatever the offset account balances it is it negates the interest on the home loan so yes about yep. offset right mm-hmm. about the redraw it's not necessary that you when you make additional repayments that's when you start making redraw it's also if you have savings and you pay it off into the home loan uh, mm-hmm. you will see the redraw balance available there so suppose oh okay yeah i'm doing a refinance loan now and um, somebody has a $50,000 in their offset, but they don't want to use offset because it's it is uh, usually comes with a package in fees. Then mm-hmm. they can use free redraw facility where they can put this $50,000 as a redraw into their home loan account. Mm, right. So for a million dollar loan, what they would see in, on their home loan account is 450 is the outstanding balance and $50,000 is the available balance. And then, of course, the more they uh, repay into their loan or the more repayments they make that keep accumulating on that redraw balance. This concludes part C of episode 14. Stay tuned for part D as Jude and I continue our intriguing conversation with Irina. See you in the next episode.